Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talks here at the Abbey. It's been 17 years since we last saw Marina Carr's By the Bog of Cats played on the Abbey stage. It's played in far-flung places since then. But what will it be like now? Hester Swain trailing that black swan after her, here, again, once more. And so, I sat down with Marina Carr, as you do, and she talked of the early years, the intervening years, the hundreds of years that still has a world full of Noras and Hedas and the Medea that's in every woman's chemistry. She talked of the joy of reading out loud, the sound of wonderful teaching, and the rage. The rage, the rage, the rage against the drying of the socks. So, let's reconvene to reconstruct the deconstruction of Marina Carr. Enjoy this podcast. Marina Carr, um, welcome. Thank you. Uh, it's the second week of rehearsal of your play by the Bog of Cats, which premiered here at the Abbey Theatre in 1998. Do you respond differently uh, to that now with the distance of those years? Well, I can hardly remember <laughs> 17 years ago. Little flashes, little pockets of memories. Uh, yeah, I suppose I do. Um, I was a lot younger. It was a first production with all that entails. So nobody really knows what they have when a new play is being performed for the first time or rehearsed for the first time. Listening to it in the rehearsal room this time around, different cast, different director, was it jarring? And, or was it just like hearing an old friend? You, you, you talk of, um, after you've written a play, you kind of just let it go. So the fact that you're revisiting it, um, does that jar you? Um, no, it's very interesting. I suppose I have seen productions down the years of By the Bog of Cats. You know, it's been translated into quite a few languages at this point and it's had productions here and there. Um, and some of them I've attended and I've attended other rehearsals of By the Bog of Cats in America and England um, and in Estonia, believe it or not. Um, so it, it, it's different every time, but no more different than... It is with any play. Uh, I mean, when I'm revisiting it, I don't know if I have so much, so much as I'm revisiting it. I think um, the play is being revisited. Um, for me, it's something I wrote a long time ago. It's a play I'm very proud of, for better or worse. Um, it'll be very interesting to see what uh, today's audience will make of this play. It's the um, second week, as I said. What's your role in the rehearsal room then? Because you do sit in a lot, don't you? Um, I don't sit in very much at all. No, no. Um, just in and out, really, to say hello to the director and say hello to the actors. And if there's something Selena wants to ask me, or if there's um, some question mark over uh, over a staging issue or um, maybe a line issue, um, she'll run that by me. Or if she wants to show me a particular piece of uh, staging. I'll have a look at that. But really, my my approach is very much hands off. But I'm there. I'm on call if they want me in. Um, of course, I love being around actors. They're fantastic people to be around. and We have a wonderful cast. Um, and I enjoy uh, the fun of rehearsals and just that exchange between actors, director, writer, all the creative team in the room. Um, I find that very inspiring. I suppose selfishly, I find it inspiring for work I'd be working on now rather than the thing itself. Well, you glean things from it, do you think? Yeah, well, I think it all goes into the pot. Um, so you'd be looking at things and you'd, you'd, you'd look at, you'd, you'd hear a scene and watch a scene. You, 
you've written. And you say, oh, God, that's interesting. If I was to write that now, how would I write it? I'm not saying it would be any better. I don't think it would, but it, it would certainly be different because of the, the time elapse and accretion and all the things that happened to you over two decades, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and also, I find actors hugely inspiring, um, how they interpret roles and what they can bring to a role, um, the backstory, that they, how they inhabit the character. And you get this whole sense of this unwritten play, which I find fascinating. And yet you've written the play. I, I got to sit in on a kind of on a talk that you had with the actors just before the model box and after the first read through on that Monday. And um, you never explain. Well, you didn't seem to want to ex- explain things. You left it to the, the actors, I suppose, skill um, and and see where they can go with it. But you did say that you you let the characters have their say. It was interesting that you didn't define it. You, you're You're going to allow the actors to do what they will. Absolutely. I mean, I think you, when you're writing plays, I mean, it's hard slog most of the time. But the best, well, for me, the thrill of writing is when the character runs away on you and suddenly it, the character has more or less written themselves. It's as if something else takes over. I'm not trying to sound mystical or philosophical or anything like that. But there are times where you, you hit a seam um, and you strike a little bit of gold and suddenly the character takes off. Um, as for interpretation, I think there are many ways to interpret plays. Um, I find them interesting. I suppose I would have a few guidelines in, in, or in a few ideas of my own of how it shouldn't be. But as to how it should be, I think that's w- wide open. And that's up to, as you say, the skill of, of the particular actors and what they're going to bring to it. Um, and your collaboration with Selena Cartmel, you worked with her um, on Woman and Scarecrow and the recent opera, The Rigoletto by Verdi. Um, can you talk about that collaboration? Yeah, I've worked with Selena. I think this is our maybe our fifth time working because I also worked with her on a play for the RSC called The Cordelia Dream. Um, I worked with her on a children's play, The Giant Blue Hand, which was at the Ark. I've worked with her on Woman and Scarecrow and uh, Rigoletto. I was the librettist for that. Selena was the stage director. It was my first libretto. It was her first opera. So I think we both learned an enormous amount. Um, it, was, it was a very rewarding experience in many ways. Um, and, and a huge learning curve, I think, for both of us. What did you learn? Uh, well, it's very difficult to write a libretto when the music is fixed for all eternity. That's the first thing I learned. It was a bit like doing maths and equations. Um, you were very... Uh, it was very tight, what, what you could say. So you, you're caught between the syllable count and the stress count the whole time. I loved the experience, absolutely loved it. It was very challenging. I suppose I'd love to do another opera. Yes, I'd love to do librettos for operas that exist, but I would also love to like write a libretto where I wrote the libretto first and then the composer had to come along and <laughs> do all the maths, fitting it in and uh, doing the stress count and the syllable count, etc. Um, and hopefully down the line it'd be something, there's something wonderful about uh, singing everything. Um, I, find, I find that really interesting. Working with her on By the Bog of Cats, it's a place Lena's wanted to direct for a long time. And... Um, because we're both very happy to be working together on this. It's been a long time coming. Um, and I think she's going to bring great things to it from what I've seen uh, so far. Uh, she she's, has marvellous images. 
Um, she has wonderful ideas and she works very well with the actors. And then you've um, Monica Frawley, the designer who I've worked with before and who actually did the original design for By the Bog of Cats. And I think it was very challenging to have to redesign a set, uh, particularly when it was perfect first time around. Um, There's bound to be comparisons. Like, ba- yeah. People are bound to, mm. and I don't think that phases her at all because mm. Again, 17 years is a long time. She's developed and moved on as a designer, as an artist. So what she what she has uh, designed this time around is very different. It's it's still very beautiful, but it's very different to the original um, set. So that, and then we've uh, this wonderful English composer, Isabel Waller-Bridge, who's, who's doing the music, and she's astonishing. She's a real find. Um, and then Sinead Wallace and the lights is wonderful. Um, you know, see a wonderful uh, team in the Abbey production team, and everybody's very supportive of the thing. And it's lovely to be in an environment where everybody wishes the thing to do well, and everybody seems to be rooting for it. Yeah, we're and all le- working towards the same goal. Yeah, it's it's lovely, and let's hope that 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 energy travels across the footlights and. Um, it'll be reciprocated by the audiences we hope to have. I might get back to um, your relationship with the Abbey later. Um, can you tell me a bit about your background? A bit? Uh, born in County Offaly, so uh, brought up there the first 17 years of my life. Went to school down there. Um, uh, left at 17 to come to UCD, where I studied English and philosophy. Then went off to the States and taught for a year. Um, came back I'd started writing my final year in college wrote my first play um, my final year in college came, Your first play was Oolaloo which was actually the second one performed here uh, Low in the Dark was the second play I wrote but that was first performed in the project and Oolaloo um, was performed here after it was actually I wrote that in college um, and then just kept writing plays, signed on the dole, like every waster in the late 80s, early 90s in Dublin. We were all penniless, but it didn't seem to matter. I mean, I look at kids now, and it's just so expensive for them. It seems like it's so expensive for them to live. I mean, we lived on nothing. Uh, we all lived in bedsits. Um, you know, we hadn't wash machines or anything like that. And Yeah, I don't know. What was your college years like? Um, there seems to be, yeah, there's a, there's a leap, I suppose, you know, to this overnight success that took, you know, 10 years. But what was the college years like? You were in Dramasock? I was in Dramasock. I acted a bit in, in Dramasock, directed a little bit. Um, I was never really huge in Dramasock. I was probably on the fringes of it. I suppose I was very into my books, so I spent a lot of the time in the library. Uh, I was a bit of a swat make up for years of sleeping sleeping my teenage years away um, but I, I love college I found it was great freedom uh, the discoveries uh, the friendships made um, it was a wonderful time um, and then life goes on you have to grow up a bit and struggle on um, I heard you up in the rehearsal room and, and that famous um, after reading uh, meeting that I got to attend and you were fantastic mimic uh, you were mimicking the Midlands accent and I say mimicking but it's your original accent my accent yeah but um, you're, very, you're a very good actor I love to read I love to read in public in fact I prefer reading in public than speaking in public really <laughs> it's easier um, reading your work not just mine anybody's work I get a real kick out of that 
And um, is that how you when you when you when you're writing during your day? Do you read it out and I do, and yeah. Through? Yeah, I think the best stuff it has to work on the ear as well as the eye. Um and possibly has to work more on the ear, particularly with theatre, because it's it's as we know, it's all spoken finally. Um yeah, no, I love I love reading and particularly I, I like reading my own work, but I love reading other writers' work. Um, poetry especially. Uh, get great joy out of that and get a real high out of it. And, you know, I'd spend I spend most of my twenties just reading poetry. Where did where did that love of poetry come from then? Your oh, I was in the families. The parents were very interested in literature and music and all of that, so it was there. Um but also, you know, college just talking to um lectures and just attending some you know being taught by by some really great teachers you know the good old style where they'd stand up and they'd recite for you um it wasn't all secondary material back then you know they they could stand there and pour it out is that how you teach i try to i i do i do quite a bit of that um Again, it's you know you have to you have to give you a certain amount of academic information, but um, I think what what goes in most is if if the student sees the teacher has a passion for and love for the subject, they will somehow by osmosis pick up some of that. They may not understand what you're saying. I remember my early days in UCD going in and the likes of Gus Martin, Seamus Dean, and you know, all these crazy philosophy lectures this mad Italian but they were brilliant they are absolutely brilliant and they would just quote reams of stuff at you and I, half the time you wouldn't have a clue what they were talking about but it just it sounded wonderful I said I want to know more about that I want to know what that means and I think it is kind of the there's, there's kind of a thing now um, abroad where everything must be immediately understood or you have to explain, almost explain yourself away and everything, accountability, I hate this word. Um, because I think it's used in, in very wrong ways. Um, and in effect, when it comes to um, teaching, very often it amounts to dumbing down and trying to make things, simplify things too much for the student. And that'll never bring the student on. So I think it's always good if they're reaching for something, as it's always good if we're reaching for something. Um, Virginia Woolf said that um, in every book she she wrote that there had to be at least two or three sentences where she didn't understand what she meant. I just think that's a fantastic (laughs) guideline. Um, If you look at Joyce, I mean, how many sentences are there that anyone can understand, not to mind? Um, Yeah, and... Beckett and all, all, all of them, but um, yeah. You're you're one of six. Uh, are you the only one of your media family that uh, went into the arts? Um, no, I have a brother uh, who's a painter and a sister who's a painter. Your father was was is a playwright. Your father's still alive. Yeah, yeah. And your mother was a school principal. So when you got your first play on the on the Peacock stage, how significant was that for you? Because he had had plays on. Was that was it significant? I'm sure it was, but because you know that had happened before, it was very significant. <clears throat> I have memories of coming up to the Abbey Theatre at the age of seven to see my father's plays. Um, Do you so remember much about that? I remember being backstage. I remember a party. Um, I don't know if we even saw the play, but I remember the excitement of it. Um, I remember talking to the actors. I've been taken on tour backstage, but I can't remember which actor it was. 
um, and loving that. Um, well, it, it's always significant, I think, to be produced in one's national theatre. Um, I think Irish people have a very strange relationship with the Abbey Theatre. It's a bit like the mothership. <laughs> um, I we all feel we own it a bit, or we... Hopefully. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and that puts a lot of pressure on the Abbey Theatre at times. Um, so it, it it is always a huge thing for me to be produced here. Um, I have a relationship going back to them from the very start. Um, and that that counts enormously. Um, yeah, and hopefully long may it continue. You were in your you were in your early twenties when your first play was uh, staged. Here. I was twenty six, twenty seven, I think. Um, yeah, twenty six. That seems like so incredibly young. Yeah, so you. Sure I thought I was ancient. <laughs> I thought I was over the hill at twenty six. So that's sustained. That relationship has sustained over the yeah, years. Pretty much because yeah, they they yeah. took a risk with you. Yeah. Was it a risk at all? You seem to have um, always have had or a uh, confidence in your writing. Was that always there, or or, or is that just? Bro- I that don't know. I think people come along and say things about you after, and they tell you what you meant and what your plays mean. <laughs> and in a way, maybe that's the way it has to be. Um, the older I get, I, I think you know it's enough to write the things. Well, I was I was chatting to you just before there about it. I found it incredibly hard to find anything about you on the mm. internet. And um, and having studied your work in college and there's books on you and read a couple of books, you know, for this as well. All academic stuff. Um, don't feel I got to know you much better, but do you ever get sick of being deconstructed? Do you ever, like, because you seem so practical and matter of fact and you say in the rehearsal room, the words are there, the characters are saying that. And then you have this, like, huge tome about what Marina Carr meant you know, about the, the feminine and the masculine. And I know. I mean, half, it makes me sound very intelligent. No, it does. Or very long-winded for both. Um, half those things never occur to a writer. I can guarantee you that. I think we're a lot more practical than people um, give us credit for. Um, for me, uh, I'll often sacrifice meaning to sound. I know that. Because I think there's something there. Um, I think logic is overrated. I think linear narrative is overrated. And um, while I have obeyed those rules some of the time, um, sometimes I break them. Um, and and what that means to anyone else, I've absolutely no idea. But I have to say, I'm hugely grateful for all the tomes and essays, whatever written on the work. I'm absolutely delighted if anyone reads the work good, bad or indifferent and uh, say what they have to say about it. Um, And as for, I love the fact that you think you you don't know a thing about me because (laughs) there's not that much to know. Do you know, I am who I am. There was right bits place. about you in the early 2000s and then there just seems to be this huge void from, you know, 2000 on in a way. Um, and I, I would have thought with, in, all, in all those interviews that have occurred over the years, you're closed. You seem to be, you're very private. Hmm. Rightly so. Yeah. Yeah, well, I have lots of people to protect. Um, and I don't think it's one's private life is anyone's business. Um I don't think finally you can reduce a writer's work to biography. I think it's probably the silliest way to interpret the work or try and find meaning out of it. And there's, it's such a culture of, um, I don't know, small relations and small walls and this means that and the other means this. And it's, it's kind of exhausting, actually. Um, 
it doesn't interest me. And I think it, it, it reduces both the writer and the work, finally. It closes interpretation, closes it down, narrows it. How do you write? You're, you're, what's, what's the discipline? Is it you sitting at a blank page or, or have you um, updated to, you know? Oh, I have the laptop. I'm yes. very, very modern, postmodern, whatever. No, I always write um, pen, and, pen and paper um, and uh, my first draft and then I'll rework that and type it up. That, that, I'll, that will count as my first draft and there on in I'll make additions and is this you knowing what you're going to write about or is this like is there a discipline that you'd have your few hours of the morning and you'd sit down and say I'm just going to write something or is it that I, I need to this is commissioned this is where I'm going with well, this well both sometimes sometimes you'll go for what's going to pay the bills and sometimes you'll take that freedom and say no I need to just put this down so it's, it's a combination of, of both um, a lot of the work I've done uh recently has been commissioned but a lot of it hasn't been as well I've stacks of unproduced plays just lying there hoping somebody will take pity on them and give them an hearing at some point um, and then I've plays that are commissioned and uh, the I suppose the whole uh, journey of a play has changed in my lifetime before it was it was um, it was much more it was it was it was a much closer relationship between the theatre and the um and the writer. Now it seems there's huge literary departments everywhere. And as far as I can see their main object really is to keep the writers away from the artistic director. <laughs> kind of like bouncers, intellectual bouncers. Um so it's kind of the luck of the draw who's in the literary department. And usually there are several. Um and, and there's this incredible uh rigorous reading process your plays put through um, which I have to say I find um, okay it may be transparent and egalitarian but I, I I don't think the criteria for assessment are necessarily the best ones um, I think a lot of a lot of judgments uh, there are a lot of committee judgments made and it, it, it never used to be like that um, and I, I, I suppose I lament the the old way, where you, you wrote a play, you handed it to the artistic director, they read it and they got back to you and say, yeah, I'm going to do this or no, I'm not going to do that. Or maybe you need to do a bit of work on this. But it was very fast. It was very personal. And it was it was it was a relationship of trust. And that seems to have gone by the wayside, um, not just here, but right across the board in England and America. Um, I don't know so much about the, the European theatre uh, thing, but I imagine it's not that much different. And I suppose big institutions need um, procedures. Another word I hate. But your, your writers, I think, are uh, subject to those like everybody else. Reen Carr, then, there is a thread that goes through many of your plays. There seems to be um, a lot of melancholia and rage where I'm not asking you you know what, where does, where does this come, come from, from? <laughs> where does that come from Hang, hanging the clothes on the line <laughs> when you fold 300 pairs of socks on a Tuesday evening I think you're entitled to a little bit of rage <laughs> <laughs> rage rage you know, the time. Uh, where does it come from um, well I suppose uh, to be a woman in this century is not the easiest thing really um, 
you know, you, you get on with it, you deal with with it, um, but it's uh, it's uh, you just say, look, this is the way it is. I'm born into the wrong century, and then you just keep writing because you have to or you want to. Um, the melancholy, I suppose, is is the flip side of of the rage. Um, you know, I was reading Ibsen lately, uh, Doll's House, and you'd had a gabbler on here. Um, recently and you know these plays are written over a hundred years ago and you think you know we thought we'd sorted that out it hasn't been sorted out at all you know they're in th- this country's full of Nora's and Hedda's the world is full of Nora's and Hedda's these women frustrated where avenues are closed off to them I'm not saying it's as bad as it was then but you look at certain parts of the world it's much worse um, we tend to be very isolated here. We're an island off an island off a continent, so we can fantasise about how wonderful and, uh, you know, suckers for teleology and that we're all getting better. But you look at the greater world, you look what's happening to to women in some parts of the world. It's absolutely shocking. Um, and, and that these things are allowed to happen and continue to happen. The mind boggles. So I think... Rage is a very feminine quality. I think a lot of women are very angry about a lot of things. Um, And women, I suppose, uh, we have been given, I'm not sure I agree with it, we have been given the emotional hat in this world (laughs) and men have been given the hat of reason. So um, we're the irrational ones, supposedly. Um, I find men completely irrational, actually. But anyway, that's that's for another day. Um, uh, I've been reading the Aristia uh, lately and uh, the three Theban plays and Antigone. And one of the details someone was telling me, you know, Antigone, you know, Antigone is trying to bury one of her brothers who's le- left out on the hill. And uh, this woman, she's she's Greek, uh, she's an academic in all things Greek, and she said, "Um, did you realise this play was written when they passed a law in Athens refusing to allow women to attend funerals because they kicked up such such tantrums and the emotional outpouring and the grief was so terrible because there was always a war, there were always dead bodies, there was always a son or a father or a husband killed in war. So they passed this law, barring women from funerals. So you can imagine for the the Greeks sitting there watching at the festival of, the, of Dionysia, watching this play about Antigone and not allowed to bury her brother, how it would, what it would mean. Now, unfortunately, the, the Athenian women at the time, most of them would have not have been at the theatre, but foreign women who, who, who were visiting would have been. So you know, stuff like that, you know. Um, when the RSI was first staged, apparently women miscarried in the theatre, and you know, it was so shocking. It, it's still shocking. Um, so I don't know if that answers the question remotely. Well, no, it does. So, so when, so when you address this rage, what? So when you write something like "By the Bag of Cats," what? What are you addressing there? I mean, I, I know as a writer, it's coming from your imagination. It's not coming from your head. But are you addressing anything with that? Well, as you know, it's based on Medea. Yep. So the hard wiring is Medea. So it's going back in a way to this 
well, and Medea is in in every woman's um, chemistry. I think she's that that fear, um, and she's she's a cautionary tale for all women. I think, and for all men, possibly, but certainly for all women. So what you're addressing there, or what I'm trying to address there, is one, the perception of a woman who does that. Um, I'm trying to understand what would drive a woman to do that. I'm not sure I ever discovered finally what would drive, but the journey was very interesting. Um, Your sympathies, when you translate it to Hester Swain, your sympathies lie with her? You're sympathetic, you're, you're on her side? I'm very much on her side, mm-hmm. but I'm, I have to say I'm on all my characters' side. You have to love them all. Otherwise, what's the point in writing about them? So you have to love your angels and your monsters. Um, but yeah, I would, I would have a soft spot for Hester Swain. I'm not sure I agree with what she ends up doing, but I can, I can follow her a very long part of the journey. When you speak of angels and monsters and the Greeks um, and the fact that when Bog of Cats was first staged, um, many of the critics didn't recognise that it was hung on the framework of Medea. Now, this time round, they're all going to be Greek scholars. Um, now, do you um, do you read the critics, uh, what they write or uh, do you rate them, these uh, angels and monsters? Well, I didn't call the critics angels no, and I monsters, know. no. I, I um, do, I, do I rate them? Uh, well, it's hard not to be affected by them um, because they affect your box office. And I, I suppose I resent that they have that power. Um, having said that, there are some critics I would rate, yeah, those who know what they're talking about. Absolutely, I would rate. Um, and I've read a few things about myself down the years that have made me pause and consider. Um but then I've read a lot of silly nonsense and have known that they actually didn't understand the play, that they had no interest in understanding the play and they just wanted to, you know, show how brilliant they were, basically. So you have, you have as in life, you have all different kinds. So I suppose critics who have a large track record, I would take very seriously their opinions. Those who don't, I would take less seriously. Do you go to the theatre often? Yeah, as much as I can. Yeah, I love going to the theatre. Do you go... um, I read somewhere that you don't sit in on first nights. Is that still the case? Well, I have been for a while, but I think I might go back to just sitting out. And that would be because... Um, I don't know, you feel you're kind of stuck. And I always end up sitting beside or behind the person who really hates the play. (laughs) And is very vociferous about how much they hate the play. And I, I think I'm too old. I can do without that now. You know. So you just go out and have dinner. And, and or you just it. yeah, or just stand at the back and watch a few little bits and just smell how it's going and hop in and out. But this one though, it it already had a proven track record in a way. It's a it's a fresh perspective on it. There has to be less a uh, fear about it. With that, one can be always hopeful. <laughs> We wait and see. Um, I want to end off um, with something that I, I read that you had said. I love reading about how people die. It says everything about how they live. So what will they say of you, Marina Carr? God knows. <laughs> I don't know. Well, no, obviously, I probably I will care. Um, what will they say about me? 
what I'd like them to say about me. She was a good woman. Thank you, Marina Carr. Thank you. (laughs) 